is the great glory of your gospel. That through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross, you have rescued us from the domain of darkness. And you have translated us into your kingdom of heavenly light. You have made us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints if we are in Christ. One of the most striking examples in your word of this testimony is the testimony of the Apostle Paul, who had become a powerful voice for the gospel, a powerful preacher and advocate of the faith that he once tried to destroy. And that is interesting and that is important for us to see, Lord, because all who believe in Jesus Christ can testify in the same way that you have delivered us from the bondage of sin. You have given us new life. You have fully equipped us for your service, even though, like Paul, we were once blasphemers and disobedient. So this morning, we honor your name because of your transforming power in our lives. You have put a new song in our mouths. You have put a song of constant praise to you on our lips. We thank you, Lord, for the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit who transforms lives from the inside out. We rejoice this morning in the assurance that our sins are forgiven. We are profoundly aware of our eternal indebtedness to Christ who paid an unthinkable price to set us free. And we know that in him we are now free indeed, free from enslavement to the law, liberated from bondage to sin. And so we pray this morning, Lord, enable us to stand firm in that freedom. Safeguard our hearts and seal our deliverance so that we will never again be subject to any yoke other than the easy yoke and the light burden of Christ. We know that apart from your gracious power, all our attempts at godly love and faithful service are utterly futile. Apart from the Holy Spirit's enablement, we neither could nor would honor Jesus as Lord. Apart from the intercessory work of Christ, we know that we would falter Apart from the grace that you give us to persevere, we would surely fall away. And apart from the purifying power of your word, we could never be fit for heaven. We confess to you, Lord, our deep shame that our hearts are so prone to coldness. Our love for you is so shallow and too fickle to honor you in any worthy manner. Our submission to Christ is so often fragile and erratic. Our walk is faltering and inconsistent. We are too susceptible to the lure of the world, the lusts of our own flesh, and the schemes of the devil. And so we come to you this morning and ask, grant us more of your grace to be diligent in our responsibilities, in our godly duties, that we would be faithful in our devotion to Christ, that we would be industrious in the work of the gospel, clear in our testimony to the world, steadfast in our defense of the truth, 
and untiring in our service to you. We ask that all our conduct would be worthy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that every aspect of our lives would bring honor to him. And we ask all of this in his most holy and glorious name. Amen. Well, if you would, take your Bibles now and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. As we have been studying these early chapters of the book of Genesis, we have been seeing God's revelation of where everything began and what it is all about. Where it began and what it's all about. And we need what God has to say because God was the only eyewitness at creation, wasn't he? And his testimony is recorded in chapters 1 and 2. And not only was he the eyewitness, but we also see there that he is the creator. He is the one who brought all things into existence by the word of his power. And we are told there that God looked at everything that he had made and saw that it was very good. It was a perfect creation, perfectly designed and functioning perfectly. But then in chapter 3, we learn what went wrong with the world. And we understand by looking at chapter 3 and the chapters that follow, we understand a little bit more about why things are today the way they are. The problem is sin. And at its heart, sin is rejecting God's authority, resisting His design, and disobeying His word. And the result is that we are separated from God, enslaved by sin, and under God's judgment. And so even when we look at the catechism and we talk about those who are in Adam, that's who we are, in Adam, by nature. That's why we need a Savior. And indeed, in the midst of pronouncing a curse and a judgment on mankind and all creation in chapter 3, as we see God do, because of sin, we also see that God gives a promise. He gives a promise of a deliverer who would come in chapter 3 and verse 15. This deliverer who would undo the curse, who would conquer sin, and who would save his people from their judgment. That deliverer, we learn in the New Testament, is Jesus Christ. And he is the only hope we have of being reconciled to God. And so, that sets the tone for everything else in the storyline of Scripture. This is where Scripture is headed. It reveals the devastating influence of sin and God's plan to conquer that sin and to save His people from their sins and to make all things new. That story is already wrapped up in these early chapters of Genesis, and now we are well on our way to seeing how it unfolds throughout history. Now, as we've been studying these early chapters of Genesis, we have noticed that it paints a, a 
discouraging picture of mankind and his sin. And it reveals to us that mankind has experienced a rapid and intense downfall morally and spiritually, even as mankind advances technologically in the world. Sin began its influence in chapter 3, but chapters 4 and 5 show us how rapidly it spreads and how pervasively and universally it destroys. Sin not only separates us from God, but we begin to see that the longer it reigns in us, the further it drives us from Him. So that we understand there is no neutral ground here, and there is no standing still. If we are not right with God and drawing near to Him, we are moving further and further away. And so as we come to chapter 6, we see the culmination of sin's destruction. And now in our text for today, we see the announcement of God's universal judgment that is to come. What we have in our text for today is the beginning of the account of the flood. And our text for today prepares us for that account by describing the darkness that dominated the world as it does today. And it tells us what God thinks about it as he does today. So let's look at our text for today, which is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Follow along as I read. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the world of Noah's day. By now, the godly man Enoch has passed away. No doubt some remember the message that he preached, but almost nobody cares at this point. The world is given over to immorality and violence. It is thoroughly corrupt. Finding a godly man in this world is almost impossible. In fact, the odds are literally one in several billion. This text then describes the darkness that dominates a sinful world. But at the same time, it also once again gives a glimpse of hope, reminding us that God always leads a faithful remnant 
though it be a minority. He always leaves a faithful remnant in the world, and he has a plan of reconciliation and restoration. As we work through this text, I want us to consider three questions. Three questions as we go through these eight verses. The first question is, what is that? The second question is, where is man? And the third question is, where is God? Those questions might not readily make sense to you here at the beginning, but I'll explain them as we go along. The first question I want us to consider is, what is that? And what I mean there is that there are a couple of details in this text that are somewhat difficult to explain, and they can be distracting from the real point. They're details that when we look at them, we tend to ask, what is that? I want us to take a quick look at these potentially distracting details and then move on to the emphasis of the text. If we don't discuss them, they're going to be distracting the whole way through because you're going to wonder, what is that? So let's get them out of the way and then we'll, we'll look at what the real emphasis of the text is. In verse 2, we read about the sons of God who married the daughters of man. That is unusual language there. And there is quite a bit of debate among Christians about who these sons of God are. And to tell you the truth, we're not going to resolve that debate today. Because even if I tried, inevitably I would have somebody come up to me after the service and say, well, have you thought about this? Or I'm just not so sure about that. And you know what my answer to you would be? Okay. That's fine. We're allowed to disagree here. And I don't think we need to resolve the debate. What I want to do this morning is highlight the two most reasonable and likely explanations for this. Both of these explanations are given and held by faithful, godly men whom we would respect and trust. That's why this is hard. This is not a matter of orthodoxy here. Okay? But here we go. One view holds that these sons of God are fallen angels or demons who had possessed human men in order to fulfill their sensual lusts with, the, with human women or the daughters of men. That is actually the historic explanation, the ancient Jewish explanation and understanding of the text. And the basis for that is that this phrase, sons of God, when it is used in Scripture, pretty much always refers to supernatural beings, angelic beings. You look at the book of Job, it's used three times in there, and it clearly refers to angelic beings. What's more, when you get to the books of Second Peter and Jude, you actually find a reference to angels that seems to be a reference to the angels in Noah's day who are actually put into prison and held in, in prison because of their sin on this day, at this time. And so the emphasis of this interpretation is the demonic influence that had infiltrated the sinful world. Whatever you think of the interpretation itself, the emphasis of the interpretation is clearly true, that there was a clear influence of evil in the world, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 6. 
those chapters speak of Satan's influence and our spiritual warfare. So that's one viewpoint. The other view holds that these sons of God are descendants of Seth, who intermarried with the daughters of men who are of the line of Cain. Now, that view seems to be more consistent with a natural reading of the text, understanding that in chapters 4 and 5, we've seen this contrast between the two lines, between the godly line and the ungodly line. And that's a reasonable explanation as well. And the emphasis of that view is to show how corrupt mankind had become of himself in his sinful state and the, the, the sinful decline of mankind. And that emphasis is also true as we read about in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3 that speak of the utter deterioration of mankind spiritually. Now, to be quite honest with you, I have not myself come to a firm conclusion on which of those two interpretations this is. Um, I have heard some who say, no, I'm convinced it's this, and others have said, I'm convinced it's this, and they both present compelling arguments. Okay, The point of this is not to come down in a hard and fast conviction so that we now have to separate from others over an issue like this. You can make a strong case for either view. And the applications and emphases of both views are good and accurate. And that is what we're going to focus our time on this morning. Those views, whichever one is correct, both of them paint an accurate picture of the world in Noah's day. And I would argue the world of our own day today as well. And so while it might be fun to speculate about this, we, might, we must be careful not to miss the real point, what this teaches us about the state of mankind. You say, you haven't told us which view you prefer. I know, how about that? It's great, isn't it? If you want to know what view I prefer, come talk to me afterwards, and I might be able to give you an answer. Now, the other potentially distracting detail of this passage is the mention of the Nephilim in verse 4. Many have assumed that this is a reference to giants. In fact, if you're holding an ESV, there's a footnote there that for the word Nephilim that says, or giants. And, it, and the, the thought is that these are giant human beings, that they are some sort of almost supernatural offspring of the marriages that are mentioned in verse 2. But we need to understand the text doesn't say that. The text does not make that clear, and there is no evidence that the Nephilim were giants in Scripture. The only other place that this word is used is in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, where the people of Israel were afraid of the Canaanites and felt like grasshoppers in their sight. And if you look at that passage, if there are giants mentioned in that passage, it's not the Nephilim, it's the sons of Anak. And so we have to understand that there's a lot of confusion here. The word Nephilim is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word that's given there. And the word itself means fallen ones. Or some have said the ones who fall on people or something along those lines. This is not telling us that they were some superhuman race of people. But these details, this idea is further described in verse 4 
making these Nephilim, these people, out essentially to be notoriously violent men. And we'll see more about that as we, as we go along. So those are two potentially distracting details that are unclear, that Christians debate and argue about, uh, I hope with a smile on their faces as we try to uh, discern. And it is good for us to discuss these things and to consider what they could be. But there is a greater emphasis in this text with more serious implications for us. There's an explanation about our sin, the state of the world in which we live, and what it means for eternity. And so let's move on now to our second question. Where is man? Where is man? And by that, I mean to look at what this text says about the state of mankind in this world of sin. Is it really that bad? I mean, is it? Much of our world today wants us to understand that mankind is basically good and a few things have gone wrong, or that people are basically good, but it's the systems that are wrong and sinful. And if we can just get ourselves into some utopian system, then we won't have to deal with these problems anymore. Is that really all it is? I think the, the monks of the medieval world would tell you otherwise. And so does Scripture. Is it really that bad? Are we really that bad? Can't, can't we say that man is basically good and we've just gotten off track? And can't we help ourselves? What is the true condition of mankind according to God's perspective in this text? Well, we read first of all in verse 1 that mankind was multiplying on the earth. The text says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. I mean, that's a good thing, isn't it? Isn't that what God told mankind to do? Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Yes, it is. And here, once again, we see a testimony of God's common grace. Of God's common grace to mankind and, and allowing him to continue to grow and multiply as God had designed them to do. And by the way, this would have been explosive population growth because of their long lifespans. And you think about, as, as I've mentioned in, in previous weeks, by the time Noah lived on the face of the earth, the earth is around 1,600, a little bit more than 1,600 years old, and the population was likely in the billions at this point on the earth. Explosive growth. But in this, we are reminded that even in a world that is dominated by sin, as we will see, God's grace, God's common grace is still evident and at work. You see it around you, don't you? You see it every day as you, as you go around this world for all the frustrations that you have to endure from one day to the next. You also see evidences of God's grace all around. But then we come back to verse 2, and we see also that mankind is clearly influenced by evil, and that is a gross understatement. We read, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, whichever interpretation you take of what happened there, 
whether that was some demonic possession or whether it was just intermarriage between Seth's line and Cain's line, the language of this verse suggests that these unions were unnatural, inappropriate, immoral unions in some way. Now, the phrase took as their wives does refer to a normal recognized marriage, which means that these unions were accepted and approved in society as a whole. But the basis of these unions had nothing to do with God's design or godly character. Did you notice that? The basis of these unions is that these women were attractive and that the men took any they chose. And as we've already seen in chapter 4, it appears that they also took as many as they chose. So the basis of these marriages, the sense of the text is giving us that the basis of these marriages was lust. And their practice of these marriages was in some way deviant from God's design. And this was the universally accepted spirit of the age, much like it is today. Is it not? And this evil behavior is merely the outward manifestation of what is inward. What was it that drove this outward behavior? It was their lust. It was their selfishness. It was an evil heart. There is no love of God. There is no devotion to Him that is guiding their decisions. They have become just like Cain, their ancestor, whose approach to God was only selfish and self-serving and according to his own desires and ideas. And so while there certainly is a demonic influence over all the world, there is also a serious problem in the hearts of people. And that is something we need to understand. No, our problem is not out there somewhere. Our problem is in our own hearts. And that brings us to verse 3, where we see that because of that evil influence, and that evil heart, man is also separated from God. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And that word abide could also have the idea of striving. My spirit will not always strive with man. And what is, what is meant in this text here seems to be that there is a fight going on for the souls of men, that there is, there is a war going on between men and God. That man is not merely deceived by evil, but that he is intent on rejecting the truth of God that has been revealed to him. And that certainly is consistent with the Apostle Paul's assessment of mankind in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, that says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, the idea here is that the Lord is looking down on this and he is seeing this strife between mankind and himself. 
and that the Lord is patient and he is gracious in giving mankind an opportunity to repent of sin and to come to him by faith, but that his patience and his grace will one day cease and judgment will come as we will see as we move on in these passages. And so God says that man's days shall be 120 years. Now, some have said that that means that man's, kind, man's lifespan is going to be about 120 years, but uh, that's a little bit shaky as you look ahead because some people outlive that 120 years, even right after the flood. I don't think this is so much referring to mankind's age as it is to how long mankind has left until the Lord destroys the earth with the flood. It would be 120 years. This shows us a picture of mankind in his rage against God, in God's amazing grace and patience toward mankind. Mankind rages against God. He rejects God's authority and God's design and God's word. But God graciously calls men to repent, and He gives them an opportunity to do so. But Scripture repeatedly makes clear that that opportunity will not last forever. And His judgment will come. And there is a call, even here from the very beginning and the foundation of the earth, there is a call to come to God by faith, in repentance and faith through Jesus Christ, and to come without delay. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Now, verses 4 and 5 sum up the state of mankind by showing us, pulling all this together, with evil hearts, and being separated from God, mankind is totally and entirely depraved. Verse 4, we already talked about the Nephilim, but I want you to notice at the end of verse 4 what it says about them, that these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Again, that's not so much telling us about their size as it is telling us about their strength, their viciousness, and their fame. These men were known for their warlike exploits. That's the idea behind the word Nephilim. And the reference to their might adds to that. Not only were they known for that, they were revered for it. That's the meaning behind the word renown. That says something about not just these men, not just this group of people called the Nephilim. This says something about society as a whole. Their heroes were men of violence and abuse. And if we think about it, that's not so different today, is it? You say, well, we don't celebrate abuse. Well, hold on. We don't celebrate every abuse. We condemn certain abuses. But we also tend to prize others, don't we? Just look at all the ways we celebrate brute strength and even violence while often overlooking other abuses. And just look at how much violence sells for our entertainment. 
And verse 5 gives us God's assessment of all mankind in one statement. And this is like a dagger through the heart. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You tempted to think that mankind is basically good and just needs to get a leg up on life? Read Genesis 6.5. This is a sweeping condemnation of every part of every man in every age of this earth. The problem with mankind was not a system, it was not a social problem, and it was not governmental oppression. And it was not a bad experience. Mankind was not a victim. The problem of mankind is depravity of the heart. To the very core of every person in his actions, his motives, and his thoughts. All of it was only, not mostly, not partly, but only evil continually. It was a world that was thoroughly corrupted, filled with people who are thoroughly corrupted. And that is incredibly bad news, isn't it? That's devastating news. That's terrifying news. Why? Because God is still in heaven. God is going to do something about it. And that leads us to our third question. Where is God? And by that, I want us to consider the response of God to all that is going on in this passage, all that is going on in his creation. And this really is the heart of the text. This is where we need to sit up, open our ears, pay attention, and prayerfully consider where we stand with this God. And we need to respond. And what we see here is, if you will, a two-edged sword. And what we see in God's response here on the one side, convicts and condemns the sinner. The one who might ask with sarcasm, where is God? And it warns of judgment to come. But on the other side, it comforts and strengthens the believer. The one who genuinely cries out, where is God? And it reminds us of God's sovereignty and grace and justice. In a world where darkness reigns and sin dominates, we might wonder if God knows or if God cares or if God can do anything about it. We might ask, where is God in all of this? And we should ask. And in this text, we have an answer. And it changes everything. Where is God? And what is His response to the world, then and now. Verses 5 through 8 tell us. First of all, verse 5 tells us that God sees. He sees all that is going on in the world today. And He doesn't just see the outward events. He's not just reading the headlines. He sees 
even the hearts and the motives of every person. The Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw all of that. And the language here is a sharp contrast to what we've already read in chapter 1, verse 31, isn't it? There, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, once again, God saw His creation, but what He saw was very different. It was no longer good. It had become corrupt. And God knows And he knows the whole picture. He knows the depth of that corruption. And he knows why it is corrupt. He knows the whole picture. He knows every intricate detail of every human heart. Just as the psalmist declares in Psalm 139, right? Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Listen to this. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. He sees it all. He understands it all better than we can. He sees even the things that we cannot see. And listen, just because he delays in his judgment, just because he waits, does not mean he does not know or does not care. He is patient, but he knows. Just because he has not brought judgment into your life doesn't mean that you have gotten away with your sin. He knows the hearts, he knows the thoughts, he knows the motives, and he knows the actions of all people of you and of me. So the question is, when he looks at you, what does he see? What is his assessment of your life and of your heart? In a world that is dominated by sin and with hearts that are stained by sin, we need to understand that God sees it. And what is his response to what he sees? Verse 6 tells us that he grieves. He grieves at what he sees. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The word regretted is meant to be parallel with the word grieved, and it means the same thing. It isn't that God thought he made a mistake. It isn't that there was a defect in something God had created. What this is telling us is that his heart is deeply grieved by what had become of his creation because of sin. He once rejoiced at the sight of his creation. Now he grieves. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he's not a vindictive God who responds with an outburst of anger so that no one ever has a chance to repent and believe. He could have done that, but he didn't. 
This tells us that God's heart is more compassionate than that, and that He grieves at the sight of our sin. He is a God who cares deeply, and He longs for people to repent. He grieves at our hardness of heart when we know better and we sin anyway. When we know the truth but reject it, He grieves at the blindness and the brokenness of mankind. The videotapes that you see, the the video footage that you see in the world today that makes your blood boil, he grieves at what he sees. And in his grief, we see a glimpse of his grace and his love. We see that he is the kind of God who cares about us, the kind of God that we should want to please. But in our sin, God grieves. And then in verse 7, we see a third response. God judges. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, we need to understand before we go any further, what has happened to mankind? did not surprise God. Okay? This didn't catch him off guard. When we saw the establishment of marriage, do you remember? We actually saw what was intended to be a picture of redemption and God's salvation before the first sin was ever committed. This didn't catch God off guard. Okay? We need to understand that. Nevertheless, it still grieves his heart to see his creation broken by sin. And while he is a God of compassion, and while he does care, and while it does grieve his heart, we need to see also that he is holy, and he is just, and he is righteous, and he is the creator, which means we belong to him, and we are accountable to him. And he will not allow sin to go unpunished. He cannot. And so we see in this verse a sweeping and comprehensive declaration of judgment. No one and nothing escapes this accountability. Even the animal kingdom was brought into this judgment. And that reminds us that our sin is never just ours alone. It affects everything. And it affects those around us. And so this verse obliterates the common argument, well, it's my life, I can do with it what I want. Have you ever made that argument? Have you ever heard that argument? It's a lie. It's not your life. It belongs to God, and He will hold you to account for it. And it intersects with other people so that the way you live will affect the people around you. And God knows about it, and He is grieved by it. And His justice is stirred by it. And the punishment will fit the crime. All sin is rebellion against this holy and just and righteous God, and so all sin will be punished with comprehensive, eternal judgment. 
And we'll read about that as we move on through the next couple of chapters and we see how comprehensive that judgment is. But wait. Didn't God make a promise of deliverance in chapter 3, verse 15? Didn't he? So, has he forgotten about that? Has mankind's sin somehow nullified God's ability to save? Has mankind's sin actually become greater than God could have imagined and greater than his ability to save? Has he forgotten? Is this promise no longer in place? No one wants to shout out, absolutely not. <laughs> Because that's true. Absolutely not. And that brings us to the final point. There is a glimmer of hope in this passage. And in verse 8, we see, fourthly, where is God? He sees, he grieves, he judges, but he also saves. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's a huge contrast to everything else, isn't it? It brings a sense of hope. We have seen all this darkness and all this terrible news and this terrible picture of humanity, but there is something else. And here we see the glorious grace of God. There is one man who stands out. One man distinguished among the rest of mankind. By God's grace, there is always a remnant, right? God will not abandon his promise to send a redeemer and to save his people. And so here we meet Noah. We are told that he was a man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that he was a recipient of the grace of God. That's what that means. In verse 9, we will see that he was righteous and blameless and that he walked with God. But before we're ever told that, we're told about the grace that God had set on his life. Being righteous, being blameless, walking with God, none of that was by Noah's own worthiness or goodness. Noah didn't make that happen by himself. Before any of that could happen, there first was grace this undeserved favor in the eyes of the Lord. It is only God's grace that could enable Noah to walk with God and to live a righteous and blameless life. And it is the same in every age. It is possible to be delivered from sin. It is possible to be reconciled to God and to walk with Him in righteousness and holiness, but not through our own efforts. It is always by the grace of God alone through the gift of salvation that he offers through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So as we bring all of this to a close, we, we need to now step back and understand that this passage is not just relevant for the world in the days of Noah. Maybe we could be forgiven for thinking that if it weren't for the sermons of Christ. And if it weren't for several passages in the New Testament, it is relevant to us today 
as well. It is as much of a warning for us today as it was to them, uh, even to, to, the, to the people in Noah's day to whom Noah preached. Jesus teaches in Matthew 24 that in the days leading up to his return and the final judgment over the earth, that the world will once again be marked by the, the characteristics of Noah's day. The things that we've seen in this passage. And do we not see the same characteristics in our own world even now? Oh, we can discuss whether or not it's gotten as bad as Noah's day. But if we are not as bad as Noah's day yet, can you tell we're headed there? We see the same characteristics in our own day, and so we must learn the message, the lesson that this passage has for us. We must learn to discern these days of Noah and to respond in faith. And so we must acknowledge several things about ourselves and about the world in which we live. As we consider what this passage is teaching us today, we need to acknowledge the reality of sin and of our own sinful hearts. Are you hearing me? You are not a victim of someone else's sin. Some of your experiences may have been the result of someone else's sin. I'm not minimizing that. But you need to understand that your deepest problem is your own sinful heart. And that sin is real. And furthermore, we need to acknowledge and understand the depth of that sin. That it is and has affected us to the very core of our existence. Every part of us is affected by sin. That doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. Praise God for common grace, even in unbelievers, but it means that we are sinful to the core. And that we are helpless. We are absolutely unable to help ourselves. And we need to understand that God's just and righteous judgment rests upon us, and we are in desperate, eternal danger. When we understand that, we've come to the end of the first beatitude that Jesus taught us in Matthew 5. We have become poor in spirit, and now we are ready to see the glorious grace of God. So we need to acknowledge that there is a way of salvation that has been provided for us through the one deliverer, by God's grace, the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And if that's true, then we must cry out by faith to God for salvation from our sin. We don't need to up our church attendance, although maybe we do, but that's not saving. That's not a saving act, right? We need to cry out to God by faith for deliverance from our sin. And that salvation transforms us, doesn't it? Then, when we believe and we've been made a child of God, now we are able to live like Noah, to live righteously and godly and to walk with God. And so we must live faithful and holy lives by God's grace as gospel lights in a sinful world. 
My question is to you, do you understand and acknowledge that this morning? All of that. Is that the testimony of your life? I think a fitting summary of this passage and an application of its lessons can be found in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see this picture painted in New Testament terms of who we are and what we are in Christ. Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's your second question. Where is man? Now, here's the third one. Where is God? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, is that your testimony? As it was for Noah? Have you found favor? Have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Are you living in His light? And, and are you living in such a way, believers, that others might find God's grace through you? Or are you a child of this age, living in its darkness and destined for its judgment? Examine your own hearts today and humbly and prayerfully discern which one you are and what must be your next step in responding to what you've heard this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Before I pray, in just a moment, we're going to 